0: Well, I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 14. Uh, We are still with the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. Uh, He is uh, ministering at the city of Lystra. And he's going to end up being stoned there by the hatred of those who do not want him to continue to preach the gospel. But we're going to review this uh, story and primarily look at Paul's sermon to the pagan audience that is there at Lystra. So let me begin reading in Acts chapter 14 starting in verse 8. And as I read, I'm reading the inspired holy word of God. So please give careful attention to the reading of God's word. Verse 8. At Lystra a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, Of course, God really did it. They raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language that gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. May God bless the reading of his Word. What we learn from this uh, message, this sermon that Paul gives, and we have a very short, brief version of it that Luke records in Acts chapter 14, is we see the importance of theology in not only understanding the gospel, but also in sharing the gospel with others. Walter Chantry in his uh, book, Today's Gospel, said that evangelism always requires preaching on the attributes of God. And it's really true. Until people have a a rudimentary understanding of the very character of God, they're not going to really understand the gospel. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said that unworthy thoughts about God are the essence of idolatry. And he went on to say that I believe that there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to an imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. In other words, if you don't know God, if you don't understand God, it's not going to lead to all kinds of theological error, but also to all kinds of moral failure as well. So Paul's sermon to these pagans is really a lesson in Theology 101. Now he has just healed the lame man in verses 8-10 through 10, and they made the colossal blunder of their misguided worship of Barnabas and Paul calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. They... And, and obviously, the, the, uh, those at Lystra and throughout the Roman Empire and the Greek culture were heavily involved in the worship of the Greek pantheon. And that's why they called Barnabas Zeus, who was kind of the, the king of the gods, and Paul Hermes, because Hermes was the messenger of the gods. But this was absolutely prevalent throughout Greek culture. We don't see that being removed 2,000 years from them. But, but uh, I mean, every city that was really a, a city of any importance had a temple to one of these gods. It's kind of like every city that established itself as a city has a McDonald's or a Walmart, right? And in the same way, back in the ancient world, I mean, every city just about without exception, had some shrine or some temple to one of these gods. It was just absolutely penetrated the entire culture. And that's part of the background of studying the New Testament. And it comes out very clear here because they're actually calling Barnabas and Paul, Zeus and Hermes. But I think it, it gives us the principle that to effectively preach the gospel to people it's beneficial to know kind of where they're coming from religiously. Knowing something of their background. Because that colors how they're going to interpret the gospel. And if they don't have a right understanding of God, then they're going to misunderstand many of the things that we say to them. And uh, Paul certainly understood uh, a lot of this mythology. But uh, Zeus and Hermes come out of the uh, Greek pantheon called the the Olympians. And the Olympians were basically 12 deities of immortal beings. And this is just kind of a background for understanding why Paul is going to preach what he preaches to them in this passage. But these 12 deities of immortal beings, and they're worshipped as the principal gods, again, of the Greek pantheon. They were uh, invented actually around the 6th century BC. Some say back to the 8th century BC. All these gods were invented. And uh, they're called the Olympians because they reside on Mount Olympus. Now, let me get my little thingy turned on here. So here's uh, Greece. This is the Greek pantheon, Greek gods that we're talking about. You can see where Mount Olympus is. It's basically just right uh, south of the city of Berea. And Paul will visit there on his second and third missionary journey. He's going to travel up and down this side of Greece. So he, he goes by Mount Olympus where these gods supposedly live on top of the mountain. Uh, you can see a little closer picture here. You can see Thessalonica in the north. Berea is right uh, north of uh, Mount Olympus and Athens down here at the bottom. And here's a a picture of it. You can oftentimes, it was shrouded in clouds which added to the mystique and the mystery that the gods live up there. We can't always see them, but they're right up on top of Mount Olympus. And this is a picture of one of the main uh, peaks within that area. The stories of these gods just were uh, and other uh, mythical feats just were all over the region, Asia Minor, Greece. you find all these different stories of all the different gods, so this has just penetrated the culture. The basic twelve gods, just to be really uh, quick and overview them Zeus Barnabas is called Zeus, he was kind of the king of gods, then Hera. Was his sister, but also his queen, who was kind of the goddess of marriage. Poseidon was Zeus's brother, but also the god of the seas and storms. Demeter, goddess of harvest and fertility. Athena, the goddess of wisdom and handicraft. Apollo, the god of light, sun, prophecy, and arts. Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, the moon. Ares, the god of war and bloodshed. Hermes, Paul was called Hermes. He was the, the messenger of the gods. And since he was the main spokesman, that's why they referred to him as, as um, Hermes. Then Hephaestus was the god of life, I'm sorry, fire and the forge. So he forged a lot of the weaponry and the armor of the other gods. And then Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and Hades, the, the god of death, and the end of the world is not always included in this list. But these are the gods that everybody back in the ancient world basically worshipped or they knew about. And if you had a job, your job normally had a patron deity that you worshipped. That's why Paul got in trouble at Ephesus because the sh- the silversmiths, the ones who made the little shrines of the goddess Artemis, uh, were 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 uh, very angry at Paul because their business was going down. So, so even business, culture, arts, entertainment, all revolved around kind of the Greek pantheon. It was just everywhere, and so you can uh, also these uh, they they certainly believe that the uh, these gods influence people's lives they shaped events and if you wanted to even look into the future these gods could give you glimpses into the future in that case you'd have to go to an oracle uh, who is a priest or a priestess and probably pay him money and bring a sacrifice and they would uh, they would tell you something about your future supposedly this is one of the most famous oracles this is a uh, uh, this again is in Greece. You can see uh, basically right there, this is the temple of Apollo at Delphi. This was a a major place that people would go to to try to find out, are they going to win the war that's coming up? Should they fight the war? They would go to the oracle that lived here and supposedly divine the will of the gods for the future. Basically, the twelve gods were five siblings and seven children of Zeus. And those were basically the twelve gods of the Greek pantheon. Uh, There's actually a hierarchy, a family tree of the gods. You have the first generation that came out of chaos. The, the, The origin of the universe. They don't have any way to explain it. There was just chaos. And then mysteriously, out of chaos... Came five original deities. One of them is Gaia, Mother Earth. She's very important. Then you have Tartarus, the underground, and various forms of darkness and love. Those are the five original gods and goddesses. So none of these gods actually created anything. They just kind of came out of the original chaos. And then you have a second generation of gods. Uh, Gaius, Mother Earth had a child and end up having other children with that, chi- with that child. So there's a lot of incest going on among the gods. I mean, these gods were fickle. They, were, they basically were just a, a very powerful version of sinful man with all the lusts and all the sin inclinations of humanity. That's what their gods basically were. So, earth and sky basically come together. Sky would be her grandson. God, or whatever, and they had a bunch of gods. Some of them are called the Titans, and they there were twelve of them, led by Cronos. And uh, then there were problems among the Titan gods. And then Cronos had a bunch of gods, and Zeus was one of them. And Zeus had other children. They formed the Olympians, and they fought against the Titans. And beat the titans so that now they won their throne. So this is who most of the Greeks in, in uh, the first century were worshipping the Olympians. Who overthrew the titans. So they're different generation family trees of, of these gods that eventually developed. So all of this is somewhat of the background for what we find in Lystra. And again, this, this mythology, these invented gods... Were, were everywhere. Their temples were all over the place. Uh, here's one in, in uh, Greece. Everyone's familiar with the, Parth- the, the Pantheon in Rome, which was uh, built in the first century and apparently was dedicated originally to all the gods of the Pantheon. Uh, here's one of the most famous, is the Parthenon in Athens still standing, dedicated to the goddess of Athena, then you have the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. This is, again, we'll read about this later on in uh, Acts chapter 18. That was uh, a very powerful uh, God worshipped in Ephesus. Then here you have the temple of Athena that we saw a few months ago in the the toe of the boot of Italy at Pastum. This is three gigantic, well-preserved temples. This temple was actually built in this, around the 6th century B.C. So these things have been around. But this is dedicated to Athena. And then you have another incredible temple dedicated to Poseidon, or Neptune would be his Roman name. And then here are some of the statues all over the place of the gods. You have Zeus on the left, Poseidon in the middle, and then Hermes. So... So Barnabas was called Zeus, Paul was called Hermes. And again, this whole mindset flooded everything uh, in the culture. So that everybody was afraid of these gods. Everybody was out trying to get the gods on their side, trying to appease their wrath, trying to win their favor, to bless their business, bless their crops. And again, this just was everywhere. And uh, so we're not surprised at all that uh, once they observe this miracle healing by Paul, that they call him Hermes, the messenger of the gods, and they call Barnabas Zeus, who is kind of the king. And remember the story I told you last week how there was a very popular story that circulated that uh, Zeus and Hermes had come down to, in human form and visited the people. A thousand homes refused to, to let him in. They end up destroying all those people in their homes with floodwaters. But then the elderly couple invited them in and he turned their home into an incredible uh, palace, temple, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. So, the, the, the people in Lystra are thinking, well, the gods have become human again. It's Zeus and Hermes, and we don't want to make the mistake they, they did the last time, and they all get destroyed. So, we're going to really do them, do them the right way this time. So, they brought their oxen out, they put garlands around the arc, oxen's neck, and they're about ready to sacrifice to them. Well, they're speaking in the Lyconian language, and Paul and Barnabas don't speak Lyconian. And so they really didn't catch what was going on for a while until uh, eventually things start to develop more fully, and they began to realize that this is not good at all. So let's uh, let's begin to pick it up in verse fourteen, and see how the apostle Paul uh, is going to preach the gospel to him. Now, you know, you you look back on these these uh, twelve. Gods, the pantheon of the Greeks, and you think, you know, my goodness, um, how they ever come up with stuff like this? But you know, you can go to the movies today and just see the imagination of people. I mean, you know, like Thor, the you know the the, the Marvel character, and and you just wonder how the imagination come up. Well, the same thing way back then. Someone just sat around, they started inventing these stories. But the amazing thing is how many people bought into it. In fact, the whole culture bought into it. And it says something about human nature. Because God created us in His image. And part of that involves an inclination to worship. But if we refuse to worship the true God then we will manufacture our own gods to worship. Because we, are, we have a, a worshiping nature. And of course, today, people do exactly the same thing. There's not many worshiping Zeus and Hermes. Although Gaia, Mother Earth, has definitely made a, a, an incredible comeback. United Nations are promoting the worship of Gaia. And you see it in the New Age you see it in the paganism around us. You see a lot of the worship of nature today in extreme environmentalism. So there's, there's still remnants of this. And idolatry is still very prevalent today. And basically the form of choice today is just self-worship. And when you worship yourself, you're going to project out what your sinful self wants, and then you worship that as an object. Whether it's money or fame or whatever it might be, it's really just, that's what I want, and I want to worship me. So all idolatry ultimately comes back to a form of uh, self-worship in one way or another. Now what's interesting is Paul was a Hellenistic Jew. Paul was trained under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And Gamaliel as a teacher was known to teach all of his Jewish students a lot of Greek philosophy. So that when they went back into the diaspora, they went back into the Greek areas, they would, they would understand the culture, the religions, and nature of the people they're ministering to. So Paul would have understood all of this about Greek philosophy. He even quoted some of them sometimes for his own purpose. But he knew all about the pantheon. He knew all about these gods. He knew that basically they didn't create anything at all. They just kind of came out of chaos. And he knew that all these gods were invented. So with that understanding, we now pick up uh, in verse 14 how he begins to address these uh, people from Lystra who are calling him Hermes and Barnabas Zeus. So notice they they tear their robes in verse 14. They rush out into the crowd crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things. So he immediately begins by rebuking them for their folly. He says, why are you doing these things? Number one, we are men of the same nature as you. You're absolutely wrong to deify any man. That's, that's wrong. That's foolish. Don't do that. Why are you doing that? And he goes on and they, uh, they quickly dethrone themselves. Again, we have the same nature as you. And we preach the gospel to you so you can turn from these vain things to a living God. So maybe they had already been spilling out more details of the gospel. We don't know. But he says we are here to preach the gospel so you turn from these vain things. What you are worshiping, Zeus... Hermes, the pantheon of gods all of that is vain things in other words these are things that are empty and useless and worthless and full of futility such gods are uh, worshiping such gods is a is a total waste of time it's a deception we're here to get you to turn away from all of this and this is, uh, this is, of course, exactly what Scripture always tells idolaters. It uses a various uh, variety of means to show the pagans just the folly of their idolatry. Remember Isaiah, when he's talking to the Israelites and others who are fallen away from God and they start worshiping idols? And he says, how wise is this? you go out into the forest and you cut down a tree and you cut the tree in half. With half of that tree, you build a fire and you cook your food over it. But with the other half, you go and you carve it out into a wooden idol and then you bow down and worship it. Think! (laughs) How smart is that? You know, you're burning half of it as just worthless material to cook your food with. And the other half, you're deifying as a god. I mean, that's crazy. And Isaiah is just a master of, of irony and scoffing at the foolishness of idolatry. Psalm 115 does the same thing. It mocks the worshipers of idols by saying, look, Your idols have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. Ears, but they can't hear. Noses, but they can't smell. Hands, but they can't feel. Feet, but they can't walk. They're deaf, dumb, lifeless. And those who worship them will become like them. And no doubt the Apostle Paul was trying to make the same point. You're worshiping dead gods versus the only one and true living God Turn from your vain things to the only true God, the living God. Your gods are dead. They're just figments of your imagination. And how could anyone uh, believe in those gods? Well, it's pretty amazing today in our own self-worship today and our desire not to be ruled by God, we invent Stories, myths that are just as powerful as these myths were back in the first century. What are some of them? Evolution. That's a myth. That's just a myth as powerful as a worship of Zeus. Or the idea that uh, the woman has a right to her body so she can kill her baby inside of her. I mean, there are pagan gods in the Old Testament that you sacrifice your children to. It's just a regurgitation of the same uh, distorted, satanic-induced idolatry. The sexual freedom today, you can be anything you want to. You're male, but if you want to be a woman, you can be a woman. You know, where, where is the, the reason behind that to where we think we can actually change our nature, change our anatomy? and yet people come up with this stuff and they're not able just back then as they were so gullible to believe all of this these myths about these gods people today are gullible and buying into this stuff that's why it's so prevalent within our culture here as it was back then people do not see the truth because there's a heart problem because they need to somehow to deal with this sin that so distorts their thinking and confuses them that they're willing to worship these kinds of false gods today. What they need is Jesus Christ. They need for their sins to be forgiven. They, they need to come to know God through Jesus, His only begotten Son. So idols are vain things. That's point number one in verse 15. And then notice what he goes on to say in verse 15. We're preaching the gospel to you to turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, the one living God is the Creator. And He created the sky, the earth, the sea, and everything Everything that's in them he created the universe and now the the, the Greeks believe that originally there was just chaos and mysteriously out of chaos came those first five immortal beings of kind they don't they don't explain it they don't understand it, but Earth is one of them Gaia, mother Earth, who has a son sun god or a, or a baby god, and then together they have. A grand baby god, who becomes the sky, and it's all complicated. It's it's a it's a crazy story, but what Paul is making clearly uh, known to them is that the one true God created it all. See, in the Greek pantheon, they don't have a creator god; they just have gods that kind of manage and control things, but they don't have a creator god. See, their theology was very very defective. So what the Apostle Paul is doing is going back to the beginning, and he's pointing out to them, look, the one true God, the God of Scripture, is the Creator. He created all things. Stuff didn't just come out of chaos by itself. And really, when you think about it, God as a creator is the essential foundation for the gospel. For it establishes who God is and who we are as creatures. That we're accountable to the Creator. And that's why the Bible begins in Genesis 1-1. How? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first verse in the Bible establishes this truth. And the creation is important because it has a purpose. And what is the purpose of creation? Creation. What's the purpose of the universe that God created? To reveal His glory. That's the only purpose. To reveal His glory. And we call this general revelation. As opposed to special revelation, which is the Bible. When God created nature and creation, He reveals His glory through that. So Psalm 19, verse one, says the heavens are declaring what? The glory of God. In Isaiah chapter six, verse three, the whole earth is full of His glory. So God created all things. It's not because He was bored. But he wanted to create a canvas, a, 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 if you will, to display the full rainbow glory colors of his, of his radiance and of his majesty and of his holiness and of his glory. So all of creation, you go out at night and you look at the stars, you see his glory. You look at the, the trees blowing in the wind, the mountains and the sea, you see his glory. And so God created all of that. And this creation that reveals the glory of God becomes, in effect, His throne. So in Isaiah 66, verse 1, it says that heaven is His throne and the earth is a footstool for His feet. So in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What did God create? The very first thing He created was His throne. The throne upon which His glory would sit and be revealed through. And if you don't understand this about God, you really will have a hard time understanding a lot of other gospel essential truths that we'll get into in just a moment. But how hard was it for God to create the universe? And when we're talking about the universe, you know, we we live in the... We live in a in the Milky Way galaxy, one galaxy of maybe a hundred billion stars. And our galaxy is one galaxy of... How many other galaxies are out there, you think? They've, they've guesstimated, based upon the Hubble uh, telescope in space, as they've examined a tiny little slice of space, and they go out as far as they can see, count up all the galaxies that are in there, and then extrapolate for the rest of the universe... That there's probably a hundred to two hundred billion galaxies that are out there, with vast amount of space separate. Our God created all of that, and how hard was it for Him to create it? He did it with His spoken word. He didn't even have to lift a little finger. He just spoke the universe into existence this is the god that we worship this is the god of holy scripture and this is the god that paul is proclaiming to these people these pagans who live in lystra it's very important i think today that we begin uh, talking with people about god to begin with god is our creator Uh, Because there's a lot of uh, influences today where people don't believe that God actually created us. One of the main reasons why we need to start there is because it's God as creator that establishes our responsibility to obey Him. Because He is our creator. We are His creatures. He has authority over us. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 1. And I'll just quickly go through this. If we had more time, we would walk through it together, but you could quickly try to follow in Romans chapter 1. It says that God through the creation that He made revealed His, his invisible attributes, His infinite power, His glory, and He revealed all of that through creation. So that creation becomes a vast stage again for God to reveal His glory upon To worship nature or to worship the creation rather than the Creator is just absolutely a rebuke to God. It's blasphemy. It'd be like worshiping a painting and totally ignoring the painter. No, the painter gets the glory for the painting. And God gets the glory for the creation. But he goes on in Romans 1 and he points out that when God expressed His glory through His creation, it was evident within the human race. I mean, everywhere you look, you see God's glory. You go out at night and you see the stars, you see God's glory. You go out during the day, whatever you see around you, you're seeing God's glory being being pointed at you. He said it was evident within them and it's evident to them. His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Clearly seen and understood. And in Romans 1 21, He says that they knew God. Even though they didn't honor God as God, they knew God. Because God had revealed certain truths about Himself just in creation. And because it is evident within them because it was clearly seen and understood, and because they knew God, at least as Creator, and yet they refused to worship Him as God, therefore they are without excuse. In verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, verse 21, they are without excuse. They have all turned away from the clear truth of the one and only living God who made all things and chose to worship creatures instead. And what does that show? It just shows the rebelliousness of our hearts. The sin nature of man. That we can go out and clearly see God in creation, but our depravity is so thick we suppress it and we refuse to bow down and, and, and acknowledge the great Creator. So instead what we do our own depravity says I don't want to have a God over me who is my Creator that I am responsible and accountable to. I want to be able to live my life the way I want to be able to live it. I want to be able to make my own laws and my own rules. I don't want any God telling me how to live my life. I don't want any God judging me on the last day. So I'm going to just refuse to acknowledge that God, and I'm going to create my own God who actually approves of my sin. And likes me for my sin. And so they do away with God. They do not honor God. And they reject Him. And so they create idols from animals. Idols of men. Idols of their own imagination. And so they begin to worship these pagan idols. And they refuse to honor God as He deserves you know, this uh, there's a growing ignorance. I mean, even in America, it's it's really quite astounding, which I think means that we need to start with God as Creator more than what we normally think about. On our way back from our Malta trip, Patty and I were in—I think we we're in Houston—waiting for uh, our flight to Oklahoma City. There's a guy there, and we met him, struck up a conversation with him, uh, found out he's coming down from Montana to work on. All equipment here, so I'm trying to go fishing for a way to start a gospel conversation. So I tell him, you know, we just got back from Malta, and Malta remembers where the Apostle Paul had his shipwreck, and uh, he's on his way to Rome, where he's going to be in jail for two years, and he's preaching the gospel along the way as he goes. And 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 he had a blank look on his eyes as I was telling him that, and I said, you you're you've heard of the Apostle Paul and and the New Testament. And And he said to me, and this really kind of stunned me, he said, no, I really haven't. He hadn't heard of the Apostle Paul. He really hadn't heard of the New Testament. Yet he was American, raised up in Montana. And I tell you, we are ministering to a very ignorant generation and age where they do not know the Bible at all. And I think what that tells us is that we need to probably more times than not begin with this basic foundational truth that God is our Creator. Because what that does is that establishes the Creator-Creature relationship which makes me accountable to Him. It's the foundation for me being a sinner if I break His commandments. It's the foundation for me being judged on the last day if I disobey Him. So you need that creator-creature relationship to establish those gospel principles of sin and accountability and judgment. Otherwise, why do I need Christ to save me? Now just on a a practical side, the, the truth as Christians, we need to celebrate the truth that God is our Creator, that He made all things, and that His glory is revealed in all things. Because as the Creator, there is nothing impossible with our God. If He could create the universe, He has all power. So, what problem, what trial do you have that He cannot handle? Because He's an omnipotent, almighty Creator. There's no problem or issue that you're dealing with that God cannot immediately resolve if that's according to His holy will. He's a God who is sovereign. He is a God who is transcendent. He's outside of His creation. But also in Jesus Christ, He's very imminent. He's very personal. And for those who know God is both their Creator and their Redeemer through the blood of Jesus Christ, Christ promises, I will never leave you nor will ever forsake you. This is the glory of the great God that we worship. Well, quickly moving on in verse 16, He goes from the doctrine of creation to the doctrine of sin. In verse 16, He says, in the generations gone by, He permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Now, whenever you find in Scripture that someone goes their own way It's never good. They always go the wrong way. They always go the way of folly and sin and death. Uh, Proverbs chapter 1, the fool shall eat the fruit of his own way. The fool will eat the fruit of his own way. Proverbs 29, a child who goes his own way brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 14, the backslider in heart will have his fill of his own way. His own sinful way will just make him miserable. He'll, be, he'll have his fill of his own sinful, rebellious ways. And of course, in Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to what? His own way. That's the rebellious way. That's the sinful way. So what Paul is saying is that in generations in the, gone by, God has allowed this for those who, who do not want to go God's way, but their own way, God will just say, okay, go your own way. He didn't send them prophets to check them. He didn't change their heart so they could repent and come to Him. He just allowed them to go their own way. Now, He was sovereign over that. That's not being denied here at all. But it's saying basically he gives, the wild, he gives the horse its own reins. When I was a kid growing up, ride a horse, and I had one horse that was very stubborn, but you know, as long as you had a tight rein, you know, you could get the horse to go the way you wanted it to do. But if you ever re- released the reins, that horse would immediately turn around and head his nose towards the barn and start galloping all the way back there. And what God does, He just gives these sinners, these idolaters, their own reins, And they go their own way. So He doesn't stop them. He's still sovereign over it. He still controls it ultimately. But the result is their sinfulness goes unchecked. And the result is they are guilty before a holy God who created them. They are guilty. And notice with unbelievers, Paul stresses human responsibility. God permitted them. God allowed them. He's just putting the emphasis upon their sinful, willful choices in choosing to reject God and worship themselves or their own idols. And then the next truth, the fourth truth, is God's providence is a witness to them in verse 17. And yet, He did not leave Himself without witness and that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now this is God's common grace to rebellious sinners. This is His common grace and goodness towards those who hate Him, who clearly see His glory in in nature, but they reject it and they prefer to give the glory to their own creation of their hands or idols. And yet God in His mercy and kindness still sends them with many good blessings. rains from heaven. This is not the rain god, okay? I mean, back to the pantheon. Paul said, no, no, it's not the rain God that you're worshiping here. No, this is the one true living God. He sent you the rain. The fruitful seasons, it's not not the the Demeter, the pantheon God of of harvest and fruitfulness and fertility. That's not the one who sent you. No, it's the, the one true God. Your Creator sent you those fruitful seasons satisfying you with food and gladness. You can't give the glory to your gods. No, it's the Creator God did that. And I think what Paul is doing is just reminding them of this biblical truth of God's providence and kindness. And all of their rebellion against God has the additional guilt that God has heaped upon them blessing after blessing after enjoyment after enjoyment after good stuff and kind blessings from God and yet they they throw all of that back in His face and they refuse to worship Him. And what it really teaches us is how thankful we need to be for all those common grace blessings that we have, that we oftentimes enjoy from God's good hand, but we forget to stop and praise Him and worship Him and acknowledge, Oh, Lord God, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It wasn't just me that created this wealth. It was Your blessing that enabled me to create it. It wasn't me that somehow preserved my good health or all these other good things. It's Your goodness, Your kindness, Your mercy. Oh Lord, thank You for those blessings. That's how we should respond certainly to the providence of God. So God surrounded them with His blessings and they continued to use them and enjoy them and celebrate them but they would give the glory to their dead idols instead. A figment of their own imagination. A vain thing. And even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, Romans 1, but became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened and they became fools and worshipped idols instead of God. Now at this point, the sermon stops. And the reason why it stops may be because at this point, these other people come down and they start contradicting Paul, interrupting Paul, turning the crowd against him and they eventually will stone him and drag him out of the city. So whether I'm sure he would have gone on to specify the Gospel more and maybe the reason why Luke doesn't record it is because he was interrupted at this point. But God is our creator. God is the God of all providence. And these doctrines are basic to an understanding of who God is and who we are. You really cannot understand sin and accountability and God's right to judge us if you don't understand that He created us as well. A.W. Tozer said, The essence of idolatry, is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. A God begotten in the shadows of a fallen heart will quite naturally be no true likeness of the true God. And God rebuked Israel by saying, "You thought that I was just like you. And what blasphemy against the Lord God of heaven, who created all things, and before whom the angels sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. He is a God to be feared, our God, the God of creation, the God of providence. He created us and he can crush us. He is not only a merciful God, but he's a consuming fire. And we as creatures have sinned against our Creator. Who has given us his holy law and we have broken it and we have chosen to worship ourselves rather than worshiping him. We deserve his judgment and his wrath. And our only hope is to turn to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the only provision for salvation for a sinner. To know that Christ, the Son of God, came down and died upon the cross fully God and fully man. But He took our sins upon Him. And God the Father took His holy just wrath that we should bear in hell forever and poured it out upon our substitute so that He suffered, He endured the pain that the Creator should pour out upon me for me breaking His laws so that any sinner who repents and believes in Jesus Christ alone for salvation can be forgiven. And we can come to know the true God of Scripture who is both Creator and Redeemer. And to know God as our omnipotent Creator as His children, now through Jesus Christ, is a blessing instead. Pink, and I close with this, said, There is nothing He cannot do. There is nothing too hard for Him. No prayer too hard for Him to answer. No need too great for Him to supply. No passion too strong for Him to subdue. No temptation too powerful for Him to deliver from. No misery too deep for Him to relieve. He is our Almighty God. The Lord is our strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And we who know the Lord through Jesus Christ can rejoice. And not only is He our Savior, but He's our Creator. And He rules through His providence over our life. And His power is always there to protect us and guide us and bless us according to His good will. This is the God we worship. Let us rejoice in Him. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for the opportunity to just glean some of the inspired wisdom and truth of this great theology that the Apostle Paul preached to these Lyconians, And we thank You, Father, that uh, You continue to remind us of Your glory through creation all around us. That even as we glory in your redemptive love, we are to glory in your almighty power as creator as well. Your wisdom, your oversight, your providence. And we thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. That we can always look to you for your power and your strength to bless us. And so thank you, Lord, for this sermon on theology. That Paul gave to these pagans to bring them back to a basic, fundamental understanding of who God is. And we just want to give you praise and glory today in Jesus Christ. Amen.